Welcome, everybody, to episode 73 of the Enneagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and I'll be with you, and so will Enneagram 7, Dr. Barbara Ryla. I don't need to give much intro for her because she's going to do a better job of introducing herself in the show. And today's episode is more than just a podcast. We're hoping that it will become a resource for people. It's the first part of two or three, and those will be released in the upcoming weeks. Today's episode, Dr. Barbara and Suzanne are going to talk about the Enneagram and trauma. It's a longer episode than we normally do, but like I said, it's a unique episode. They introduce themselves. Suzanne shares her personal background around adoption. They give a working definition of trauma. Uh, There's a visual activity that they do about the unblemished heart. They talk a lot about stress and security movement and parenting styles. Also, a lot about the nature versus nurture aspect of trauma and Enneagram. We learn about pro-social behavior, what that looks like, and there's a good chunk of Enneagram 6 talk, and they're joined by Patty Pickering, who was in the audience that day. Over the next few weeks, more will be released with them talking about trauma and adoption and Enneagram. So be sure to like the episode and come back and listen for those. Now, let's get to the teaching. We have gone around the room and introduced ourselves, and we are now to the talent, Barbara and Suzanne. We're the talent? Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I have lots of new names now. You know, Joel can't say mom, so I'm the speaker, I'm the author, today I'm the talent. Um, so let me just say, Barbara, thank you for coming you bet. to do this day with me. Um, I sometimes think credentials are overplayed and sometimes I think they're real important and I feel like uh, to talk about trauma it's real important that uh, everybody who's listening understands what the credentials are and who has them. So my only role today is to talk about the Enneagram because I don't have the credentials to talk about uh, the other things that we're going to discuss. And I think we all need to kind of revisit being comfortable with what we have to offer and what we don't have to offer. Because there are so many opinions about things from people who know nothing about what they're talking about that I think we need to kind of back up a little bit and say there are some things that need to be answered by people who are uh, educated, trained, and experienced in answering those questions. So um, thanks for giving up one of your holidays and for being here with us all day. And just know that there are going to be a lot of questions. And um, I, I want you to share with everybody what your credentials are and how we got here. And then um, I have kind of a direction I'd like for us to start, and I think Joel will um, probably lead us where he wants us to go after that. I'm a psychologist with 35 years of experience specializing in treating children with trauma. Um, Part of the reason that I came to the, the decision to become a psychologist is my parents were foster parents during my childhood. 
And so I have 50 foster brothers and sisters in addition to five biological siblings. Um, I think that that <clears throat> was pivotal along with the fact that I was raised as a preacher's kid. What can I say? <laughs> There's something to be said for that. Uh, there certainly is. And my mother was a social worker. So it became kind of inevitable that I would go into some kind of work with children. 35 years later, um, I still specialize in working with children of trauma and their parents because the parents are the healing force for children who have experienced trauma. And so I, I do a unique style of treatment that is very family-based, um, but also child-friendly. A good bit of my work in recent years has been heavily influenced um, by the fact that I discovered upon introduction to the Enneagram that I am a seven. And that set me free to meet children where they're at, speaking to them and, and teaching them in ways that are playful and joyous, which seems to be quite the opposite of working with children who have experienced trauma. Um, but that's the richness of the Enneagram that has brought that about. Presently, I work in the mission field in deep <laughs> West Texas, <laughs> where I am the only um, highly experienced psychologist working with children for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square miles. So I do the best I can to deal directly with the population that I have, but I also... Fortunately, at this stage of my career, I am um, also training medical students that come out of the UT or the TTU um, medical school. And I am also a faculty involved with training um, our psychiatrists. We have um, 16 psychiatric residents and one child fellow. And I am um, very involved and delighted to bring trauma-informed care to Deep West Texas. Um, have three kids and one and three-quarter grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun time. And I have a balance between um, work and uh, the rest of life in terms of balancing to make sure that I have plenty of joy. So... I'm a snowboarder, and I create costumes, and I craft, and I sew, and I do all kinds of silly things for fun. Does that kind of sum it up pretty well? That does. I want to add one thing. Uh, when you were here in Dallas, um, we frequently asked you to uh, see just one more kid, to work just one night a week, to do just a little more, and... You knew that as a seven, you had to boundary that or you couldn't keep doing what you're doing. And I'm terrible with boundaries, so I admire that. But the thing that I think people don't know about sevens on the Enneagram is that they do that kind of work, the kind of work that Barbara does, and they're able to do it because they have good boundaries. 
And people who are a different Enneagram number uh, often don't have good boundaries, which is me. And um, it's, a, it's a different kind of challenge. And if you don't understand the Enneagram, then you don't understand why a really good therapist who works with kids who have experienced trauma won't do more. It's like, you need to do more. And so I think one of the things that we could have done if we had had time as we're together for today is we could have talked also about the Enneagram and boundaries and trauma because things that seem to know no bounds like trauma are sometimes explained with the Enneagram in ways that can be helpful. I want to add to um, the table that we're setting for the day that um, I'm an adopted child, and I was adopted at birth by the doctor who delivered me. And until I was, say I'm 69, maybe 55, until I was 55, I had this lovely story where my dad went to the hospital one night to deliver a baby, and it was me, and he went home and talked to my mom, and she, he asked her to spend the day at the hospital with me because he wanted to adopt me, and they had never talked about adoption and didn't plan to adopt a child, and then uh, my mom went to the hospital and spent the day with me, and they took me home. And um, somebody walked up to me in my Sunday school class one day and said, like, was it really all that great? Like, nothing? No, no drama, no trauma, nothing, just this great story. And I said, well, yeah. And then I spent uh, some time in therapy <laughs> because it wasn't, it wasn't as um, complete as I had talked it. And then later on, uh, my mom and dad both died and... I was kind of disowned, um, not, well, not kind of, disowned by one of my brothers. And, um, and then I had the most remarkable experience in finding my biological mother, who I had my original birth certificate, so I knew who she was. And we knew that she didn't marry until she was... 50, and we knew that she never had any other children. So um, in circumstances that are that seemed to me like God was just laying out breadcrumbs for me to find her, I, at the time, spent a good deal of time working and teaching and speaking in Albuquerque. I was there probably 10 times a year. I stayed at the uh, Albuquerque Hotel, and when I... At 55, found my birth mother. She lived right across the street from the Albuquerque Hotel. So it seems like, oh, oh, this is going to be so great. Except that when we contacted her, she didn't want to have anything to do with me. And she didn't want me to ever contact her again and, and all of that. And then uh, I was teaching at Pepperdine in Malibu. And a friend of ours invited Joe and I to go to dinner uh, to meet some of his friends He's a Church of Christ pastor, and we went to dinner. There were six people at the table, and it's not important to tell you the conversation that led up to what happened at the table, but what led up to the conversation was I was telling the story of the fact that 
I've been told by one of my birth mother's cousins that she had no idea who my birth father is, but that um, she had an, a pretty good idea who it probably was. And she didn't know his name, but she had some details about him. And um, I shared those details. And uh, the woman sitting next to me at the table, who's much younger than I am, started getting very uncomfortable. And her husband started patting her on the arm and trying to love her well. And then she started to cry. And I finished my story and she looked at me and she said, well, I think your birth father is my grandfather. And he was a horrible person. And then within three days, she contacted me and said that she had talked to her mother and her mother had talked to all of her siblings and that if I was interested in pursuing whether or not I was related to them, they were all in. And if I didn't want to, that was okay with them. And that was maybe three years ago. I guess, three years ago, and um, I haven't done anything with that yet. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to, and I'm not sure I'm not going to, but the young woman who's sitting next to me at the table lives in the area, and uh, she was in my cohort for uh, a year, and um, it's, it's a very, very complex, interesting place to be. And so one of you who's in the room uh, desperately wants to know uh, who your father is. And I, much younger than me, much younger than me, born in 1990. And I was born in 1950, and I'm not sure I do want to know. So uh, all to say, it's just very, very complex. And we're going to start by talking about trauma so that uh, we can use the conversations around trauma and the Enneagram to talk about the trauma of adoption mostly later on in the day. I, I think I want to start here. Is there a working definition for trauma that we could all kind of hold on to for the day so that we have a reference point to come back to? I think a good way to describe it is experiencing something that threatens or feels as if it threatens our survival. And our survival is not just physical survival, it's psychological survival, and it can be spiritual and uh, survival. So experiencing something that can take us away in a hurtful, frightening, intimidating, terrifying, upsetting, or even its opposite, an invisible evaporation. Okay. So let me add the Enneagram piece to that. Your Enneagram number is determined uh, part I was taught that your Enneagram number is determined partially by genetic predisposition and partially by the environment. And then when I'd been teaching about 15 years, people started saying, well, is it 50-50? Is it 60-40? And I began to ask questions about that reality and think that through. And I ended up at a place where I am convinced 
from the Enneagram perspective that it's genetic predisposition, that you arrive on the planet genetically predisposed to be the Enneagram number that you're going to be. And I know that your Enneagram number or your personality is well honed by the time you're five. You're already living into the fullness of that, which does not give you permission to assign numbers to children because that's a whole different conversation. But I do believe that your number's well honed by the time you're five and that you're living out of it completely by the time you're 18 and that it has become your way of being in the world by the time you're 18 so that it feels like it defines you and it feels like it's the only way you have to be in the world. So one of the reasons I teach the Enneagram is because inside of that one and only way of being in the world and the only way that you can see the world because the Enneagram is about nine ways of seeing is also subject to being healthy in your number, being average in your number, being unhealthy in your number, being in excess in your number, and being pathological in your number. And that's where credentials get to be really important to me because I don't teach about the Enneagram and pathology unless I'm teaching only clinicians or today we'll talk about it because Barbara's here. Because I don't want to cause harm. And that has always been true, but the Enneagram is so trendy right now that it would be really easy for people to just start talking about something that they don't know anything about. And there are a lot of people talking about trauma mm -hmm. and mental illness mm -hmm. and using language that they don't really understand. Like, the world can't all of a sudden just be packed with narcissists. And that seems to be the new word. Like, everybody's a narcissist. You're smiling like it could be. So I'm going <laughs> to leave that alone. <laughs> I'm going to keep talking. Well, we have had a little bit of a run on narcissism here lately. So um, we're going to move beyond that, and I'm going to say this. I um, do believe that there is not only more talk about trauma, but more trauma. And from my perspective over here, I think the reality in Enneagram wisdom is this. When you experience trauma, whenever that happens, then you end up either in excess in your number or having to deal with and treat pathology in your number. And so there are literally hundreds of people over the years who have come to me and said, I was this number, and then I had this experience, and now I'm this number. And that is not true. I'm sure it feels true, but that's just not true. Your number doesn't change. So what happens is, if you experience trauma, is you get trapped down here in excess or in pathology, and you have a much farther climb to get up here to healthy space and a much more difficult time staying in healthy space because of the trauma that you experienced. And 
not just based on my experience personally, but based on my experience with other people, I would suggest that you cannot move up in here and live a life where you're primarily healthy, average, unhealthy, and just moving through that all the time, which everybody's doing. Everybody's doing that. Anybody who thinks they're in healthy space most of the time is unhealthy. Because <laughs> that's, that's just not happening. So we all have this movement. The only... That's a bummer. I don't know. <laughs> Does anybody else, like, in a day, you're like, man, I'm, I'm really kicking ass. Man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so healthy. Husband, and that's when I'm at my unhealthiest, I guess. <laughs> it's tricky. It's a tricky space for sure. So my personal journey is that I don't think I ever would have been to spend most of my time not falling into excess, but up here in healthy, average, unhealthy, without therapy. I just don't, I, I just don't see how you get there. So uh, you probably know I teach all over the country, and I, two, there are three things that I do every time I teach. And one is I introduce Joe, whether he's with me or not. And the other things are I tell everybody that I believe every human should have a therapist and every human should have a spiritual director. And people say, oh, I don't, I don't need therapy. And my response is, well, you're going to. Because <laughs> everybody needs it sometimes. And if you want to save yourself a lot of pain, and if you want to take care of your relationships rather than continue to do patterned destructive behavior in relationships because of your Enneagram number, then, you know, get yourself a therapist. Mm -hmm. So, while we're still, and while we're setting the table, yeah. Thank everyone who sent in a question. A lot of the questions were really specific and really personal, and it's hard to address all of those in, in a podcast. Sure. And I was talking with Barbara yes, before mm -hmm. we got going, and it's one of the things of would love to help, and you probably need to go see a therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if, if you send in a question and somehow in all the wisdom that gets thrown out today, it doesn't get addressed or answered, you go get a therapist. And I love, has anyone seen the meme uh, <laughs> where it's like people in the 90s, and the lady's whispering, did you hear that so-and-so? And then the other one, the next screen is people today. They're like, you're not going to believe what I told my therapist today. And <laughs> That's it. Exactly. That, that stigmatism is no longer there. Yeah. And boy, is that good news. Uh-huh. That's good news. Good for business, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I want to say about that, in addition, is there are good therapists and not so good therapists. And there's the right therapist for you and a really mm -hmm. good therapist who's not the right therapist mm -hmm. for you. The same is true of spiritual directors. Absolutely. It's so, the same way you select your spiritual director yeah. is the way you've got to select your therapist. It has to be an intimate match. Yep. And your therapist may not feel like they, that they're the right therapist for you. All right. So um, the reality is then you have options in terms of the Enneagram around understanding your response to trauma. Mm -hmm. 
but the only options you have are by looking at the Enneagram in terms of the lines that connect you to other numbers. There, it, there isn't an option other than that. So if you um, are a two on the Enneagram and you experience trauma and you think now you're a six, that's a misunderstanding of everything around the Enneagram. Because it is likely, very likely, that if you have confusion, it will be between the number, your core number, and the number that you go to in stress. So, um, I think if you haven't done stress and security work around the Enneagram, you have to do that. And I may run through that a little bit later on after we've done a little more work mm -hmm. in terms of what number goes where in stress. But I do want to now say that that's work you have, you have to do that's bigger than what we're going to do in this podcast. The Enneagram, I don't believe, would be particularly helpful in talking about trauma and in talking about adoption unless there was an understanding that you take on the behavior of another number when you experience trauma and you can be in that space for a significant amount of time. And... The most important thing about that is that the Enneagram is always helpful. So there is teaching, old teaching, that the move that you make on the Enneagram when you're in stress takes you to the low side of the stress number. That is not true. It is optional if you do the work for you to take on behavior from the high side of your stress number. No matter what you do in terms of behavior in your stress number, you can't take care of yourself without the number that you go to in stress. You just can't do it. And you can't experience holistic healing without the number that you go to in security. When you make that move on the Enneagram, you don't become that number. You take on the behavior of that number, and if you do good, deep Enneagram work, you can learn to incorporate that behavior in how you do life. So I'm going to give you a little example. Uh, because I'm a two and I don't have good boundaries, What I one thing I've learned from the behavior that I get from eight when I'm really stressed, one thing I've learned is how to say no. And I'm getting better and better and better at, no, mm -hmm. I can't, n not, and it's a no without seven paragraphs, <laughs> right? It's just no, thank you, but I, I'm not available. Uh, I don't do one-on-one -on -one work anymore. It took me, it used to take me, when somebody asked me to meet with them one-on-one -on -one about Enneagram work, it used to take me a half a page to say no. And now it takes two sentences. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm beginning to feel like I could just go to you today as a therapist and you could work with me <laughs> and, and we'd be good. Yeah. But the reality is I can't take care of myself if I can't say no. Mm -hmm. Barbara, as a seven, goes to one in stress. And the reality is she can't manage the details of her life without that move, and that helps her take care of herself. So w there's a lot to be said about 
how the Enneagram helps, but you have to give up the idea that you used to be one number and then after trauma, you're another. I, as a seven, am fond of using visuals and illustrations, and I I checked with the man about how we might go about doing this. Um, So I'm going to walk us through an imagery for those that are listening to illustrate trauma and its effects I like to create the beginning of life, the unblemished heart. And you can see how beautiful and untainted and how absolutely, utterly perfect that looks. And then we begin to add trauma, one layer at a time, by crumpling it maybe even experiencing a few tears and perhaps being discarded, as is the experience in adoption. And then we retrieve that broken, mutilated heart and make every effort to straighten out, flatten out, all the little injuries, all the little hurts, all the little tears and breaks. And what we see is that there's no way to make it right. That innocent heart is never going to be the same as it came into the world. And that's the nature of trauma. You want to pass those around. That makes me sad. It's very sad. Is there anybody who doesn't have a damaged heart? No. Yeah. I think in understanding Enneagram work, matching it with child development, if we aren't injured to some extent in childhood by loss or tragedy or trauma we are injured in childhood by the need to become independent of our perfect, loving, protective parents because the push to become independent and separate from loving parents is a messy process and there's always, there's always a little hurt in letting go and flying solo children get corrected, they get disciplined, they disappoint their parents, and so we all come with a certain amount of crumple to our heart. Mm. There's no way we can get out of it unscathed. What's the line between just life is hard and and everybody... um, You know, young couples come here with children and if I say, why are you here? It's so they won't mess up their children, and I assure them they already have. Yeah. Right? Like, uh-huh. that, that's a thing. Yeah. So where's the line? Or, or, or what defines the place where there's, there's life? Just life is messy and hard, and there's trauma. 
I don't know if it's a clean cut line. It's going to be a gradated um, shades of gray kind of line. Um, the best reference we have is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study referenced by one of our um, participants, which is a count of difficult experiences during childhood cumulatively can reach a threshold of harm. And so our threshold of harm in terms of the science right now is set at four, and these adverse childhood experiences are parental loss, divorce, abuse, neglect, substance abuse, mental illness in the household, incarceration of a parent, um, these kinds of markers. So that's the best answer that our science can offer right now. I'm going to talk about the number that people go to in stress, just so everybody's on page with us. Okay. I don't, there may be people who haven't done enough work to have Mm -hmm. that right on the surface. So the reality is, I'm going to say it again in terms of the Enneagram, is you're going along probably an average space in your number. If it's a really good day, you might be top of average and the bottom of healthy. And when you experience trauma or, or you have a negative experience, then you almost in a patterned way with some patterned behavior, you begin to fall down through healthy and then through average and then through unhealthy. And you don't generally get anybody's attention until you're in unhealthy space. Otherwise, it looks like you you might be just a little feisty or feeling a little insecure. But by the time you get to unhealthy space, people are noticing that there's behavior in you that's not not good behavior. By the time you get to excess in your number, then you're behaving so badly that there's an intuitive move. And so badly means you're behaving in a way that it is so obvious that you're not okay, that you intuitively move to take on some behavior from the number that you go to in stress. So I'm going to run through the numbers so everybody knows what we're talking about. Uh, Nines in stress go to six. Ones in stress go to four. Twos in stress go to eight. Threes in stress go to nine. Fours in stress go to two. Fives in stress go to seven. Six in stress goes to three. Seven in stress goes to one. Eight in stress goes to five. Everybody got that? Goes to does not mean that you become that number. It does mean that you take on the behavior of that number. So here's what happens. Intuitively, when you can't manage what's happening in front of you, you take on the behavior of that number. It is how you take care of yourself. But the number also, the number that you go to in stress, and go to is bad language, and I'm going to keep using it, because it takes too long to say the number that you move to, where you take on some of that behavior. I'm not going to say all that. So you go to that number, but what happens is that number also has healthy, average, unhealthy, excess. And so you're not ever in stress going to take on the pathological behavior 
of the number that you go to in stress, but you perhaps will take on excess of that number that you go to in stress. And you can learn when you're falling down through healthy, average, unhealthy, you can learn based on predictable behavior in unhealthy to go on your own and get some good, healthy behavior from your stress number. And it's a game changer. It's less worse than it's work than it sounds like. And so it's a matter of learning your Enneagram number so that you know your core number, then doing another Know Your Number workshop, recorded or live, and listen only for the number that you go to in stress and the number that you go to in security. And then stop messing around with Enneagram things that are not helpful and just spend time figuring out the moves that you make on the Enneagram. Wings are not particularly important. Wings are interesting. They help you when you're trying to figure out your number, but they don't really play a part in the conversation that we're having today. So that doesn't need to be on the table for what you're trying to manage or deal with. I would think that the number we go to in security is also an important part of this conversation. I think it is. And my question for you would be, do you think it's important because you can teach people behavior that represents the number they go to in security? I would hope so. Me too. Me too. And I think you can do it. I think there are willing pupils and then there are resistant pupils. So I would hope that we have willing pupils. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, well, <laughs> I that's do work on the pathology side. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a little seven in that. Um, here, here's what I would say. Um, I just started a new writing project. Can't do it without time and four. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. But I learned from time and four when I wasn't writing, what that feels like, and what I have to do to set up the space mm -hmm. for that to be a reality. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think we think to create space methodically where we feel safe mm -hmm. or where things line up appropriately. Mm -hmm. All right, what you want to talk about? Your turn. Just talk for a while. I might help. But. Did everybody get a heart? I don't think so. I love that question. Does everybody have a heart? <laughs> everybody needs a heart. I think one of the things that is fascinating um, is what we're learning in the science about the biological understraits, the biological responses to trauma. And because I work with children and I'm very focused on child development, I would add one piece to the part around nature and nurture. Mm -hmm. I, I think all children come in with one of the types of nurture that scientists call the easy, the slow to warm up, and the difficult babies. Um, these temperaments seem to be genetic, but they also seem to be sensitive to, to prenatal factors 
because one of the things that I think affects people of adoption is the prenatal experience of not being wanted. The prenatal experience of stress, maternal stress. And what we're finding is scientifically that babies are experiencing brain growth and development in utero that is very responsive to the external environment of the gestating mother. And so children who are born of domestic violence, children who are conceived in rape, uh, children whose mothers are not well-loved and well-cared for, mothers who conceive in an untimely way, that has a, a shaping effect on the neurobiology of the child upon entrance into the world. And it does not make for the e easy temperament. It makes for the slow to warm up temperament, which is shy and retreating from stress, or it translates into an infant that is um, difficult to calm, difficult to meet their needs, difficult to read their care signals, and that forms the basis, one of the bases of the temperament forms the basis of the Enneagram number. All children are born into a caregiving environment. And the caregiving environment that has the most lasting impression will shape that child's personality in my observations. And then the baby arrives into a caregiving environment that, that shapes the, the biology that the baby brings in. And the three parental environments that we know, and you notice three by three is going to come to nine. I know. I'm it's really fascinating. Yeah. It really is fascinating. The three caregiving environments are parents who are responsive is the gold standard, the ideal. Parenting that is recognizing of the baby's rhythms, recognizing of the baby's needs, and being um, available and attentive to meeting those needs. Then there is a, a, a domineering, overbearing, perhaps controlling, perhaps helicopter parenting that is a more aggressive and intrusive type of parenting. That type of parenting environment we associate with either helicopter parenting, overly attentive, anxious, um, controlling out of maternal or paternal anxiety, all the way down to being abusive and harsh and um, ugly with the child. And then the third um, type of parenting is more of a casual, laissez-faire type parenting. And that style of parenting runs the gamut from being neglectful and disengaged from the child all the way down to being 
preoccupied with one's own parenting um, or one's own life and perhaps turning the care of the child over to caregivers um, all the way. So in other words, from a healthy to an unhealthy um, style of parenting. And that three by three grid, I think, combines the nature and the nurture into a, a very elegant explanation for the development of our number. And I have to say my understanding of Enneagram is still insufficient to completely flesh it all out, but Suzanne, you look like I gut punched you. I have a quick, I have a quick question. So the three types there, uh, the first one, what you said was the, the gold standard, the responsive. Responsive. Mm-hmm. Was there a level though with the other two, it kind of started off as this is just kind of how it is, not good or bad. And then went down from the controlling domineering, um, kind of style of parenting, we do have um, a healthier side of that parenting, which is um, going to build people that are highly responsible. Um, but if it is too harsh and steps across the line into traumatic care for the child, then we have much, much more um, turbulent and difficult personalities emerge. Okay, and then my follow-up question is the a lot of the talk or with Anagram and a lot of the work that is done here around life in the Trinity ministry is about balance and finding mm -hmm. balance. Mm -hmm. Is an ideal or even possible goal to find a balance of those, of the casual, of the... Uh, responsive, of the controlling? I, I think because we're all going to be predisposed by our number to have a particular type of parenting. So an aide is going to differentially parent um, quite, probably mm -hmm. quite differently than we will with a five. So that's a factor as well. Um, but there are, within those categories, there are healthier versus unhealthier ways to parent. Our goal for parenting needs to be the responsive model wherever possible because that is our golden mean. And, of course, that's a real difficult, um, that's more difficult for some numbers than right. it is for others. Right, right. So um, I don't feel gut-punched. I just am kind of in awe of, of everything that you said so succinctly. So thank you. Um, I do believe this. I think aggressive numbers are going to be aggressive as parents. And dependent numbers are going to be more responsive by nature, I think. And withdrawing numbers are going to be withdrawing. I mean, I, w that, that is a reality that we can go with. And I wonder if we might be able to say that it is a certain kind of challenge for an aggressive number to parent a withdrawing child or a certain kind of 
challenge for a dependent parent to parent an aggressive child. Very much so. You and I were in this room, uh, I don't know how many years ago now, and we did a monthly discussion group with parents. And we had a parent who was a dependent number parenting an aggressive child. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and, ahead and just tell the audience that group's not coming back, so we don't need those emails. <laughs> <laughs> and when we did that, that we finally, I think I said it, uh, the dependent number was distancing, distancing, distancing her child from herself by wanting to help her. And finally, at one point, she said, all I want to do is help. And I had to say, your daughter does not want your help. Is that trauma for either party, the mother? Yes. Yes. It's very traumatic for the mother. And for the child, it it characterizes what we call um, a lack of fit. So this is, and we'll get into this perhaps more in the afternoon or as we talk about adoption, but if we have our children by birth, our genetics tend to mesh better in terms of the temperament of the child that joins the family. In adoption, we are luck of the draw. And so the fit between the parent and the child will be really um, potentially more of a factor in being able to navigate a close and trusting relationship. In this case that she's discussing, it was an adopted child who came from a trauma background, which means that um, her her temperament was going to be on the aggressive side. Yeah. Yep. And that's where the Enneagram enters in, is in that place right there, because good Enneagram work can teach the mother that the child doesn't see the world the way she does. And that it is okay. Yeah. Yep. It is all right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big thing, I think, that the Enneagram brings to the that table. That is huge to have a mutual understanding, particularly as children have come into their own with their personality and they're now responsible for navigating and building the relationship with the parents. When they're real young, it's a different dynamic. But as they get old enough to really navigate those waters, being able to teach Enneagram to both the children and the parents, I found to be enormously helpful in the opportunity to address, uh, address these mismatches that we have within adoption. And so I want to clean that up, and then I want to talk about n- nonspecific trauma uh, for a while. Uh, I want to just clean that up by saying that we agreed that we were going to use animals for the children instead mm-hmm. of numbers. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Yes. And that we would use numbers with the parents. Yes. And, and what my goal in wanting to do that was that uh, children who are adopted tend to be afraid to tell the truth about feelings toward their uh, parents and then adopted parents. And then things just get very, very messy. All right. I, I want us to pull away a little bit from adoption and I'd like for you to talk about 
how you think the Enneagram can be helpful in particular experiences of trauma that don't have to do with adoption, whatever experience you might want to, you know, if you want to build off of a story or whatever you want to do. Because my lay theory is that there's more trauma every day that we wake up in our culture in the West than there has been before. And it doesn't compare to the trauma that's experienced in developing countries and other places. Can I make a suggestion of the, a different type of trauma? Sure. A lot of emails and questions came in about the trauma of uh, being cheated on and trauma of divorce. That's a trauma that we experience in adulthood, and I see that as character, characterologically different from what children experience. When a child experiences trauma, it builds the character and it's hardwired in. When adults experience trauma, they already have settled into styles of managing stress, and in this case, extreme stress. And so an adult who has largely escaped trauma and manages to get to adulthood to experience cheating and betrayal and divorce, abandonment, with a solid foundation, the ability to navigate adult trauma of that magnitude, which does rip the rug completely out from under the adult, But the ability to navigate it is so much better um, than it would be for a child who experiences child abuse. That does not mean that it doesn't hurt equally badly for the adult who is cheated and betrayed and um, abandoned by spouse. The hurt is, we can't really compare hurts. We kind of know that in mental health. So the hurt is going to be powerful and a force to be reckoned with. But we come to the table with coping skills. We come to the table with support systems. We come to the table with integrated spiritual beliefs and traditions. And so we bring many, many more resources when we come to... How's this for a seven answer, right? Yeah. I mean, this is really... The the upside of adult trauma is you've got a better package to come with, right? Yep. Uh-huh. The upside of adult trauma. I like that phrase. That's a good book. I, I would just point out you, you only get that from an Enneagram 7. <laughs> true, true. Which uh, is part of being successful in the role is using psychotherapy to plant seeds of hope. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, what makes me hopeful is Enneagram wisdom. Mm-hmm. Because yes. I, I think it's hopeful. Mm-hmm. So let, let's run through the numbers, shall we? We'll just have a little chat about each number in terms of an adult experiencing trauma. Ones. When Enneagram ones experience trauma, their first experience is with an encounter with the inner critic. 
What did I do wrong yes. to deserve this? Yes. And it must be me. And I shoulda, coulda, mm-hmm. wish I had. Mm-hmm. But that is accompanied by anger that turns into rage. And anger that is at first inward and then uh, kind of put on other folks who are involved in that whole scene. Projection. Yes, lots of it, right? And then that hurts other folks. And then the one feels worse. Mm -hmm. I believe that there is an option where a one can stop the slide that goes from I'm wrong to I will always be wrong. Shame. Right. And I think what stops that for ones is the ability they have to understand for behavior. Because you can't take advantage of what you don't understand. So my way of talking about that would be to say simply that in healthy four, you are able to name feelings, own them, and um, use them to understand yourself and to move forward. Make friends with the feeling. Exactly. But your tendency, if you're a one in four is to find a little more comfort in the low side of four and just go with life is terrible and things are never going to be better and I don't know what to do next and I'm in total despair, so I give up. And then it looks like clinical depression, which it isn't generally. Right, right, Mm -hmm. all of that. So the problem that I have is that I believe in the 26 years that I've been teaching the Enneagram, the journey through health, average, unhealth in any number happens much faster. Mm-hmm. And the problem with one going to four is that it's kind of comfortable. It's kind of comfortable to finally say, even though it's not true, I'm a terrible person. I'm never going to be able to do this right. I'm never going to get it right. My life is never going to be any better. Pity party. This is it. A big pity party that has some good feelings with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Victimized um, and and the celebration of self as victim. Yeah, which is sounds a little sick. Yeah, I started to say... I was going to say crazy, but I thought that wouldn't be kind. But it, it, as it turns out, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Call it. <laughs> is that true for all the other numbers in their movement to stress? Because I, I'm, I become a victim when I move to stress. Yes, and, I think. And then that can feel really good when I'm bitching and complaining in in one space about other people. I think every number finds a victim spot on the low side of their stress number. And, and I think what really happens in that place is then for most numbers, but not fours, you get to shift the blame to the other person. Mm-hmm. It, it's the place where you get to say, yeah, this, isn't, th- this is really about you. 
And whatever I'm feeling or whatever's happening to me is really about you and not about me. But fours say it's about me. And a one and all that intensity in the bottom of four saying it's all about me and it's never going to get better. Then is like none of us know what to do with that. Stuck in sludge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have such good words. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you want to say anything more about no, that? No, no, go right, right ahead. Twos. It's fascinating to me to watch myself. I've learned enough about the Enneagram, and I certainly should have, that for the most part, I can kind of back up and know that I just need to take care of myself, that I'm really stressed and I'm behaving badly. And what I need to do, which is counterintuitive for a two, is I need to take care of myself instead of trying to fix this feeling by taking care of somebody else. However, when I'm trying to take care of myself in unhealthy eight, I have to have somebody to blame for things being bad. And it has to be, a, I, I can't blame the, the uh, weather. Like it has to be a human being that I can get really angry with for everything that's wrong. But for twos, it comes in waves of strong anger and um, pitiful it, it comes in, I can take care of myself, and that's coupled with nobody takes care of me, right? Like it gets to be very unpredictable because in one moment a two in that space is sad, and in the next moment a two in that space is incredibly angry and aggressive. Bipolar. That's a big word. Or borderline personality there you disordered. Go. <laughs> it can be very traumatic for a child to see that in the parent. <laughs> it's interesting that I, I just looked up and Joel is making statements and I looked at Joe and Joe in his nine space went. <laughs> it's like I, I'm. I'm not jumping in. I, I'm good back here. That was a Joe smirk. That's right. That's right. So, so what I want, what I want us all to be aware of as I go through the numbers, is I've taught you that you can recognize when you're unhealthy in your number. Work on that. But you can also recognize when you're unhealthy in the number that you go to stress. And an awful lot of damage can be caused by your behavior in the number, the bottom unhealthy side of the number that you go to in stress. And that's not necessary because you can learn to stay above the line and not go there. You just have to really, really work at that. All right, threes in stress go to nine. And it's interesting because it's an aggressive number that goes to a passive space. And that's disconcerting by itself, right? When a number that's usually doing and achieving and getting stuff done and making things happen is laying on the sofa with the remote, then there's a problem there, but it looks safe. 
And I, I think we have to put on the table that being inappropriately aggressive is not more damaging than being inappropriately unavailable. True. And in terms of psychological development, neglect, which is the ultimate form of withdrawal, is the worst environment for a child. And it's the worst environment for a mate, a friend, to have that withdrawal, that rejection, abandonment, psychological unavailability. Okay, um, the, the four move in stress is tricky. And the reason it's tricky from my perspective is because fours are kind of self-absorbed in unhealthy space. So by the time fours are stressed, they are just all about themselves. The move, however, in stress is to two. And so a really stressed four who has been uh, inconsolable, only focused on the past and something that you can't do anything about, if only that hadn't happened, but it did, and now there's nothing I can do about it, and I'm never going to be okay, but the move in stress is to two. And the low side, unhealthy side of two, is being overly helpful. And that seems kind of like a nice break, right? To go from, oh, life is terrible and I can't stand my life to, is there something I can do for you? It's kind of a, this is good, except it's not good. Because it becomes manipulative, which means, in my observation, that fours that are in unhealthy space, who are in too unhealthy space, are doing with and for you in order to manipulate you. Giving to get. It's tricky. It's very tricky. And so I think the thing we all have to be mindful of is that my theory, feel totally free to correct me, is that it is harder to recognize unhealthy responses to life in a four that's experiencing great trauma after they take on two behavior because it actually looks like they're doing pretty well. And we refer to that as pro-social behavior, behavior that is interested in engaging in a positive way, a helpful way with other people. So superficially, it looks pro-social yep. when in fact you're describing anti-social behavior, which is designed to give in order to receive. And in my experience, there they are giving in order to receive the space to be wallowing in pain. It's a, and, and so here's, and that doesn't get lived out in 15 minutes. That gets lived out in four days. So here's my personal experience. Some of us in the room have parented fours. And it is that space where fours are pro-social 
that parents of fours or spouses or partners say to other people, you know, I think we've turned a corner. It's like I've been so worried, and then all of a sudden, I think we're in a pretty good place. I'm feeling so good about what's happening. And all, all we need to do is maintain this. And the reality is that what you're trying to maintain is unhealthy compounded by more unhealthy Mm -hmm. because it's not a a real thing. It's a Mm -hmm. setup for the real thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. You want to talk about that so I can just breathe for (laughs) (laughs) it? It's a trap. It it is a trap. It's a trap. Mm -hmm. Is it always, is it intuitive or intentional? Oh, I don't think it's intentional uh, in in the earlier years. Now, as an adult with Enneagram work under their belt, damn sure it's intentional to some extent. <laughs> yeah, but but it's primarily intuitive. I, I think so. Think? I think that's the nature of response to trauma. Is trauma is encoded in our left bra- in our right brain. Trauma is encoded non-verbally. Trauma is encoded as patterns of feelings and behaviors and sensory experiences. And so trauma essentially is what we called um, the unconscious. Trauma is encoded in a place that's inaccessible. And I think that's where we go during stress. We go to the least accessible part of ourselves, the lowest functioning part of ourselves. And that's why the Enneagram work is so productive because we can use the left brain to understand what the right brain just did to us. We are ambushed by ourselves, our unconscious, and that's trauma. And how would you ever change that response if you don't understand the healthy side of the behavior pattern that you end up in intuitively Mm-hmm. based on Enneagram moves. Mm-hmm. How, would you, how would you ever know to do that differently, right? So fives, and this is another really tricky one, because fives withdraw, 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 withdraw in stress. So they're like so withdrawn, and then the intuitive move to seven means that all of a sudden they're kind of awkwardly funny, Mm-hmm. Out, outside of themselves. And they're uh, cracking jokes, and you think, well, th- this is good. I've never mm-hmm. seen you quite like this. And then you end up saying things to sevens, like, I mean, to fives who are in seven, like, you seem to be doing so well, and fives don't want you in their personal lives, so they say, thank you, I am. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. I'm, I am doing well. And but but once you know it and you know to watch for it, it's manic. And what you're caught off guard by is that it's awkward. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to recognize it to know that it's manic and not just unexpected and awkward. There's always something a little off off. It may just be the timing. Something's off. Something's just a little awkward. Uh-huh. 
And in my experience, fives in stress in seven think they're funny when they're being sarcastic and cynical. Mm -hmm. And the sarcasm and the cynicism create problems that fives are going to have to deal with later. Mm -hmm. And they call it humor. It's a, that's a very tricky, tricky place. Um, I, before, well, I, I think I want you to go first in sixes, and here's why. Because the, the passion or the sin, I think we'll use passion today, for sixes is fear. And I think, as a layperson, that exacerbates everything that has to do with trauma. Mm-hmm. And you know that I think there are more sixes than any mm-hmm. other number. And mm-hmm. I believe that there is free-falling anxiety everywhere right now. And I think it's falling on anger and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think they're falling on all of us at unexpected times. And we're caught off guard with no response. So I believe in the history of my lifetime, which is but a wee spot in history, (laughs) but it's 69 years and 28 of them working with the Enneagram. I really think that sixes are experiencing an awful lot that has to be worked through right now before we ever get to Trauma. Mm-hmm. And then there's trauma. And I'm also guessing, and I might be wrong, and I'm happy to be wrong, that you're going to talk about the fact that if you are struggling with fear and anxiety anyway, then trauma is, um, are you more vulnerable? The, the question I have is, are sixes more vulnerable to trauma in our current environment in the West. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a a perspective of child development because I think sixes come to the table um, with fear largely because they have gotten through childhood relatively unscathed, meaning okay. that they haven't had severe trauma. So if you arrive to adulthood and you are a six personality, my sense in terms of child development is that you bring a basic level of fear that is affirmed and confirmed by fear evoking events and trauma. And that serves as confirmatory. Um, But I think... In terms of the childhood model, and and I'd have to think that through quite a bit probably with you, but my sense is that sixes come with a familiarity about fear and danger and concern for safety that is a confirmatory bias. That means they are expecting scary things to happen, and then when they happen, there is a sense they're that affirmed. They're, yep. they're confirmed that, yes, the world is dangerous and scary place, and we got to deal with it. And then sixes in three 
deal with it fast. It's a, it, it, it seems to me to be a quick, quicker, quickest, I've got a lot to do, i got to get it done, i got to get it done right now, but to maintain that, they get lost, I believe, on the 369 triangle. And there are sixes in the room who can certainly confirm this, and I think might want to enter the conversation here, and I'm ready for that. But I, I, I think if you're on the 369 triangle, which is the central triangle of the Enneagram, and that means you carry a heavier load in terms of movement because your movement constantly takes you to a different dominant center. So you are moving from being thinking dominant to feeling dominant to doing dominant to feeling dominant to thinking dominant. And you're, as a six, you're always thinking dominant, but you're moving into spaces where feelings and doing are more a part of your experience than the numbers that are not on the central triangle. Does that make sense to everybody? Everybody understand that? And so when you get caught on that, Richard Rohr calls it the 369 train. And when you get caught in that, then your movement has the potential to be greater than the movement of other numbers in terms of difference. I'm a visual person, so I'm thinking of the dog chasing its tail. Yeah, that works. That works. So I don't, I, Patty, would you first start by talking about falling down in your number? Then would you add to that what it feels like to go to the low side of your stress number? And then I want to talk to you about how your security number plays into that. So we're just going to have a discussion, the three of us, because I think sixes hear best from sixes. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, things tend to be theoretical mm -hmm. and people are not, sixes are not quite sure they trust it. Mm -hmm. So welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Right, okay. I just want to say thank you to Barbara for the comment about, um, you know, you're born into the world, you know, with a certain disposition, but then the environment confirms that. And as a six, I had a mother who was mentally ill. So I think she definitely, you know, sort of affirmed that danger. The world's not a safe place. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Suzanne, we talk about scanning the horizon for danger and I always do that. Um, but I think what's so apparent to me as I listen to you, I have lived most of my life in the downside of three. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or, or maybe maybe mid, I'm not sure where to put this, but in the workplace, when I worked for a large healthcare system, certainly when I did the nonprofit and where I am now, I have a tendency to have so many balls in the air yep. because I am trying to achieve. I think that's that, that three side. I mean, I think a lot of people who work with me have a hard time even seeing the six sometimes right. because I am so dang, but I get too many balls in the air. So I overpromise, under deliver, um, have the best expectations, but it's like, it's, it's like survival for me to, you know, just be doing, doing, doing. And, uh, often, you know, as you say, thinking about doing stuff that I'm not doing right. and thinking isn't doing. So I think um, for me, at least, I've, I recognize in the workplace 
more of that three energy. Now, in my personal life, um, just a lot of worrying about things that never happen, you know, um, and just needing to verbally process that. So I don't know if that answers your question. That's a real good start for me. What I want to talk about with you about that is to, I think we need to put on the table that you're in the dependent stance Mm -hmm. with ones and twos, and we're all thinking repressed. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking, it's non-productive thinking because it's concern about things that are probably not going to happen and problem solving for things that are probably not going to happen. When you add to that being in the unhealthy side of three, then when you take a break from doing to think things through, it's not productive thinking. And so it, a six who is stressed, which is frequent, because they overpromise and overcommit. So a six that's stressed, that doesn't know that there's a way to access the high side of three behavior, and that then doesn't know how to get that done, ends up the too many balls in the air is a perfect description. It the thing it left out though was that all of those balls that are in the air are generally to be a good human being who's helping other people and who's trying to make the world a better place. And that gets lost more in this move on the Enneagram, I believe, than anywhere else. And it's because of what lay people call manic behavior in trying to do and do and do. And I, I don't, I don't know that it is manic. I, I, I think that's, a, that's lay language that I'd like for you to correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 purposeless energy outlet. And so, yes, it looks manicky. I don't know that we would diagnose it just from that observation, but it's definitely not something we want to see. And Suzanne, the only thing I would add to that is that all of that activity definitely ties back to me trying to feel like I'm on safe ground. Yep. Isn't it also because you're trying to make the ground safe for other people? Absolutely. It's it's not, it's never, in my experience, I need to be safe. It's we need to be safe. So this is the point in terms of Enneagram wisdom where I teach you that the number that's the most concerned about the common good is sixes. So it is actually a lovely time in history to have more people concerned about the common good than any other number. But think about what that feels like for a six. If you already are anxious and there's free-falling anxiety everywhere in the culture, then you end up not being able to manage the one thing or the two things that are actually something you could do something about in terms of anxiety because you have to manage so many things in order to have a place to stand. And so I think what's happening is we have lots of folks who are, what what is the word? Who are uh, acting out, that's not the word, Displaying is not the word either. Embodying. Yeah. Dang it. 
You're just <laughs> extra smart today. If you, if you say embodying, just edit out that she said it first. Oh, so good. Go. Who are, <laughs> I got you on this one. Who are embodying <laughs> all the anxiety that we all sort of feel, but we get to put it on them because they're so willing to wear it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. See, that's what we're doing. It's like they, they're like a magnet for it. So we're managing and dealing with our own anxiety through them. And then through them, we're saying, here are the things that you shouldn't be worried about that. I'm, I'm getting this image of anxiety and sometimes explaining it in a sensory field yeah. helps um, us to understand the, how unsettling this is. So I recently at 66 got my um, first opportunity to cruise and on one of the smaller boats that we had to get on, the waves were ginormous and irregular and the path we were taking to the wharf was not such that you could get your balance. I think anxiety and being a six is feeling that unpredictable shift in position and not knowing which direction to brace because you don't know where the next incoming is going to be experienced. And it, it's just generally unsettling. And exhausting. Yes, because you're constantly flexing your internal and external muscles to anticipate and adjust in anticipation, but we can't perfectly anticipate what's coming at us next. And so sixes have to understand that nine energy is available. Without it, the Enneagram would not be just. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't be what it is if that anxiety didn't have a place to land. On the other hand, I'm going to skip to nine, and then I'll come back and do seven and eight. And Do you have anything else, Patty, you want to talk about, about all that? No. no. I, I, I just think it's real important that children who appear to be anxious get lots of language from us around it's okay to be anxious and here are tools to work through that anxiety and I think instead we're patronizing Mm -hmm. with adults and children who are sixes on the Enneagram and in that patronizing way we say don't be silly you don't need to be worried about that boys don't cry yeah yeah when in effect, uh, it's almost like we're putting our anxiety on them and letting them carry it for us. Suzanne, I would say one thing that you and Joe uh, helped me with was a lot of my security came from the church when we first met. Yep. Um, and through a series of things that kind of fell apart, what I'd been taught to believe just wasn't rock solid anymore. And it really was safe ground for me. And I had to find another way to feel that. And unfortunately, what was the most terrifying thing as a six that I ever learned was that has to come from within me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my gosh, we should all be scared. You know, if I, if I got to drum that up, mm-hmm. that, that it, it's not out here somewhere. So when you when you talk about the move to nine for a six, mm-hmm. the only way in my experience to get there and to find that it's all going to be okay mm-hmm. and it's all going to work out like it's supposed to 
has to come from within, and that takes a ton of, of real, like you were talking about, intentional work yeah. uh, for a six. Yeah, and, and so that's why sixes have to learn about nines. Yeah. yeah, like you have to learn that that's available to you. Otherwise, mm-hmm. there's, it's, it's like, where, where am I supposed to go from here, and how would I get there? I want to talk about nine next because nines are generally not prone to stress, even when they should be. So what nines do on the unhealthy or excess in their number is they have a great desire and the ability to be unaffected by life. And they can be unaffected by things that they need to be affected by. And when, and I would have to use the word when things get chaotic or threatening, because nines wouldn't use the word stress. I live with a nine and we have, thank God, lots of tools on board. I have only one time in 37 years heard Joe say, I'm really experiencing a lot of stress. One time. Which after you get over being angry about that, which I am, I realize that his ability to be unaffected by life doesn't result in what he would call stress. It results in what he calls fragmentation and disconnect. And his fear, not all nine's fear, is fragmentation in relationships and disconnection. And I think people need to learn to read those as words that are associated with stress if nines used the word stress. They just don't. And what happens that is helpful for nines in their move to six in stress is that they worry about things. So see, what, what you don't want one number to do, you do want another number to do. So you can't get to all worry is bad because nines need to worry about things they don't worry about. And where that happens is when in fear of disconnect or fragmentation, they move to six. And they're concerned about that and other things. It's like other things are drawn to that space of concern and some worry. And that's a good thing as long as nines verbalize their concerns. But what happens generally is nines can't get out of the low side of six. They, and in the low side of six, they verbalize nothing. They just worry quietly. And they have to move up into healthy, top of average or healthy six, to verbalize what they're worried about. And without that move, it becomes a difficult time that doesn't necessarily have a a positive outcome. You want to add anything to that? I'm good. Okay, uh, sevens. Joel's a seven. He called me one morning when he was, I don't know, maybe 20. And he said, hey, I, I need to talk to you. Are, are you busy? Can I come by? And I, can I come have coffee or something? And I said, well, 
Sure, what's wrong? He said, well, I need to talk to you. I'm going to come right now because I need to talk to you. And I said, okay, but what's wrong? He said, well, I don't know. I said, what? He said, things are really bad, but I don't know what's wrong. And I said, well, then how in the world do you know things are bad? He said, all my laundry's done. Everything in my apartment's picked up. And my clothes are hanging in the closet like dad's by color and by clothing items. So something must be terrible. <laughs> all right. Now, the positive side of that awareness is that most sevens, when they're doing things and completing projects and getting stuff done, know that the energy is different than when they're not. Because when they move to one, they get stuff done. And they're getting stuff done that has been kind of around, and you see where that's dangerous, is it feels so healthy. Mm -hmm. So since it feels healthy, if you don't know anything about the Enneagram, then you don't know that that's stress behavior for you. It feels like you're accomplishing all the things people have been wanting you to do. Okay, Barbara, I feel sure you're ready to weigh in as a seven. <laughs> I love my one. <laughs> I, I am so productive, and I'll actually, when I'm facing something that is stressful and overwhelming and that I know that I've got to tackle, I will deliberately shift myself into that one place in order to accomplish whatever it is. Um, and th that's one of the wonderful things about the Enneagram is play mind games with oneself. That's right, right. And, and it works. It's so effective. I thank you for that. You're so welcome, but here's the problem. Yep, there's going to be a problem because I'm a seven, but I enjoy the heck out of it. But the, the problem, you, yes. <laughs> In fact, you enjoy most things. Yes, I do. do. But here's, Too excess. here's the problem. When you come out of that stress, one space of getting all that stuff done, you are congratulatory and mm -hmm. proud of yourself, and you take a break mm -hmm. from doing again for a while. Go back to procrastinating. Yeah. I'm the king of resting on my laurels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what you do. It's like, oh, look what I got done. And now I don't have to do anything else. <laughs> so if you're not careful in the 7-1 space, you can perpetuate not being above average in to healthy space by feeling so good about what you get done that you take a break and then mm -hmm. you do stuff and you feel so good about what you get done that you take a break. And that keeps you in the low side of 7 and the low mm -hmm. average side of one. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's a pain in the butt. Yes. Yeah. You're so expressive. Yes. So, <laughs> and, and I love that. All right, eights. Eights uh, in stress go to five. And there's two ways to do that. And one is um, eights feel themselves withdrawing. So if they're in a situation where the stress is no longer invigorating, but frustrating, then they start to feel themselves withdrawing. 
and they withdraw a little more and a little more, and there are two responses to that withdrawing feeling. And one's healthy, and one is not healthy. Both are a move to five. There's a healthy move, which is an awareness of, I need to take a break. I'm feeling like nobody cares but me. I try harder than everybody else. I'm the only one who has the big picture here. I'm the only one who cares about the outcome. I'm the only one. So eights would never see themselves as martyring, but that's just aggressive martyring. I'm the only one that tries this hard, works this hard. Nobody else cares. And then from the worst, unhealthiest side of that behavior, eights pick up their stuff and go home. And it's a very abrupt move that leaves people not understanding what happened. And eights might withdraw into five for a day or two days or four days or a good deal of time. Or they might recognize in a healthier way that they need to take a break to regroup and reassess what everybody has to offer instead of just what they're offering in their position, which is usually a position of leadership. And then they announce that they're going to take a break rather than in anger packing up their stuff and leaving. They suggest a break and they pull back. And then when they re-enter, they do it from a place that has more space for other people, more space for doing things that might be less efficient but more inclusive, more space for others. And I think that the difficulty of an eight in stress when they withdraw to five is it becomes punitive for other people. And that doesn't have to be. It frequently is, but it doesn't have to be. And the problem with an eight withdrawing and becoming punitive is that because of your aggression, people are afraid to come get you. And there's a lot of relationship damage that can occur during that kind of time. So the reality is there has to be a meeting somewhere in the middle for that to not create just more problems. It just sounds so sad, but I think it's true because when an aggressive number goes to passive aggressive, that shift is a threat to everybody who cares about that person yeah. uh, because an aggressive person who is withholding their anger, rage, seething with aggression, we're terrified what's going to explode once it is unleashed. So the only way for it to be a good move is for an eight to learn how to take leave and for an eight to learn how to maintain above middle of average five when they're in stress. Because that's the only place that the withdrawing becomes creative space that is then expressed creatively. Otherwise, that just doesn't happen. So is it the job of the eight to re-enter the connection? Yes. I was going to ask that. If that's the third thing, how to, how to leave, how and to maintain, how to and how to come back. That's right. Mm -hmm. And, y you know, I think eights are the most misunderstood number on the Enneagram. Especially females. Especially female aides. And so, 
Yeah, it's tricky. Mm -hmm. So I recently observed an eight that pulled back and re-entered, and the connection on re-entry was nonverbal. It was just a touch on the arm mm -hmm. that was affectionate. A softening of the yeah. face. And if you don't learn to read that, mm -hmm. then not on, then when the eight does re-enter, you mm -hmm. don't know to. You miss the cue. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's very tricky. But the eye contact will be completely different. Yep. Upon yep. exit and re-entry. Yep. It'll be a softer. And you'll know when eights come back from a healthy time in five, because there's a place for you to stand. Right. Now that's my language. I think it works for everybody, but it might not. You hit all nine numbers. Right. <laughs> People are going to hear this and they're going to say, that's, that's great. Now, what do we do? Not as those numbers, as the parents of those numbers, the spouse, the friend, whatever the relationship may be. So when someone experiences some level of trauma and then especially with a lot of these moves, like you said, you called it pro-social behavior mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how misleading that can be. When you see that possibly pro-social behavior, what are people supposed to do then? When I was going through a time when what we discovered afterwards through therapists, everyone get a therapist, <laughs> is that I finally I hit the wall and all the undealt with uh, issues and trauma that I had caught up with me and uh, I attempted suicide and y'all had said the day before mm -hmm. how great you how doing. great I was doing and you know you said that it was like after the 4th of July driving home and Joel's yep. really doing wonderful That's it. I'm not the only one who has a, a story like this so people are going to want to know okay what what do we do Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to come back and listen to part two and possibly part three of the Anagram and Trauma and Adoption with Suzanne Stabile, the Anagram Godmother, and Dr. Barbara Ryla. As always, visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com for more Anagram resources and to see where Joe and Suzanne are going to be teaching next. And if you get the opportunity, we always love getting a good rating and leave a review letting us know what we're doing right and what we could be doing better.